Hello and welcome to this week's Ulster Rugby Roundup, your one-stop shop for all things Ulster Rugby from the Belfast Telegraph. I'm your host, Adam McKendry, and it's just me this week, unfortunately. We were due to have Jonathan Bradley back on after his week off to take a look back at the defeat to Munster and ahead to Saturday's game against Edinburgh, but he has come down with a bit of a bug that has left his voice to use his own words whenever he texted me earlier this morning, a bit croaky, so he has decided to buy out. In the meantime, we will still look back a little bit at the Monster game through your listener questions and ahead a bit to the Edinburgh game. It will just be me dealing with those. But fortunately, I'm not completely alone for the entirety of this week's podcast because luckily, as I teased on Twitter earlier, we do have a guest on this week to make up for it. And Given the week that's in it, I think there's no better person to discuss what it's like playing for Ulster and Edinburgh than a man who has done just that. And I'm not going to sit on ceremony. We're going to get stuck straight in. So sit back, relax and take it away. Michael Allen. Are you still in touch with anybody from Ireland? Um, I mean, yes and no, I suppose. I mean, out of sight, out of mind kind of thing is, is even happening here in Edinburgh, but uh, I'm not particularly good for keeping in touch with folk. Um, um, my wife hates me for it, but um, I suppose back home, if I if I went back home, I could quite easily pick up the phone and call a few lads and easily meet up or, or catch up and do something, uh, but it's not sort of regular um, anymore. But it's, it is what it is. Rugby circles do tend to be quite tight, don't they? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think in any sporting background, probably you could you could easily find your way back to, um, you know, the guys that I used to hang out with at, at Ulster, kind of my same age, Luke Marshall's, Andrew Warwick, you know, John Andrew, all that kind of crowd who's still there. I'm trying to think of who's still there um, that I was there. Um, you know who I mean, like Craig Gilroy, mm-hmm. obviously going to school with him. Haven't spoken to to them in a long time, but I, I don't think if I messaged them and asked them to go for a beer or meet up for coffee, I don't think anyone would say no, which is yeah. really, which is nice, you know, but it's it's on me. I should be uh, I should be more active in keeping in touch with folks. I'll give you a proper intro. Um. <laughs> oh, do, oh, do, I know, well, yeah, I don't know. I think people probably be sick of hearing from me. <laughs> Absolutely not. The week that's in it, I think it's only appropriate that we chat to someone who has played for both Ulster and for Edinburgh, and I think we find the perfect guest in that regard. Please welcome to the podcast, Michael Allen. How are you, mate? Thank you. Yeah, very, very good. I see. I like the way you said there that we find the best. I mean, I'm one of two, I think. So, 50-50. <laughs> Who's the other? I, I can't think. R- Rory Scholes. Of course, yeah, Rory. Um, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a very elite group, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> you could say that yeah i'll take that <laughs> listen mate talk to me a little bit about what you're doing now because obviously you've hung up the boots for a few years but uh for those who aren't aware yeah. what, what's uh what's life like now for you yeah you know you say a few years actually this is this has come on me pretty quick but i have it's five five years this may that i'll have retired um it's gone very fast very quick i think it helps now if you've got a young kid uh, I've got two now, I suppose, so hey, no time for anything. But um, I'm now in a financial planning role within a, <clears throat> a large practice in Scotland um, under the St James's Place banner. So I'm day to day helping folks with investments, their pensions, later life planning, um, and sort of you know their their mortgages and life insurance and things like that. I assume it keeps you very busy along with the the family life. Very busy, yeah. I was actually just mentioning uh, a pal there who I haven't spoken to in a while. Again, not not being very good and keeping in touch with folks, um, and it, I just just busy with uh, with kids and, and work. There's very little else to do other than um, get to the gym maybe two or three times a week uh, for an hour, and that's as much as I can escape. Are the boots hung up full time? Are you still totally? Totally. Totally. No, no, all done. I played um, for Wilsonians for a year um, in Edinburgh. And although the rugby was of a, of a pretty decent standard and the, the club were brilliant and the guys were good, um, I knew very quickly that I was that I was finished. Um, and I didn't have the same enjoyment for the sport um, as I did. Do you, do you still miss parts of it, though? I mean, there's more than just the game. There's obviously the dressing room camaraderie and stuff like that. Are there parts that you do miss? I think, um, I mean, I'm quite fortunate in the the, the role that I'm in. Um, you speak to people all day, uh, but our practice is, is you know, you may as well have been in a rugby change room 
you know, it's the banter's still there. Um, really good crack. I suppose that's kept me going. Um, and I, I can quite honestly say that there's just very little of, of rugby that I actually miss, um, which is really lucky, really, really fortunate. Because I know some guys who leave really struggle. Um, I didn't. I finished and six weeks later, I started a brand new role. And then about a month after that, I had a, had a kid. I was 26 and, and that was it. I suppose whenever you've got a kid to keep you busy, it doesn't let you sort of look back on what was. It really takes up a lot of your time. Yeah, totally. You know, well, I don't know if you have kids, but yeah, kids are are, are obviously time consuming, but they're brilliant as well because they uh, distract you massively from what was going on. And yeah, like I said, some people do really struggle with leaving and, and the, the sense of they've lost themselves or they've lost their um, their identity and things like that. I did. I didn't. I was. I was fortunate. I was not a uh, a household name. I wasn't an international. I wasn't a superstar. I'm someone who played a decent bit of rugby for two good clubs and went on a couple of tours. But as soon as I finished, that was that was me. I was I was happy to 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 leave and um, had no no regrets at the time, which was which was really lucky. I mean, you say you weren't a household name, but you were playing on an Ulster team that were doing very well. Whenever you part of the squad I mean you, you look at some of the games that you did play and most notably you were on the bench for that uh, Pro 12 final against Leinster I mean yeah it, it must have been quite enjoyable to be part of the squad at that time oh yeah totally I mean um, I had massive aspirations through you know from leaving school obviously playing Methody and schoolboy rugby is is lauded obviously in, in Ireland and, and rightly so because there's some extremely good players that have, got, have come out of it um but after that, I mean, I, you know, the only thing I wanted to do was to play for Ulster and, and hopefully to move on to play for Ireland. And at the time at Ulster, I think now with, um, I'll be honest, I don't follow it massively, but I do keep up to date every so often. But what I'm seeing is I don't think I've ever seen a, as young as a team play for Ulster, but play so well. And I'm particularly looking at the backs. I, I don't know these guys, but... Robert Balakun and, and Mikey Laurie and, and James Hume and, and Stuart Moore. And, um, they are, I don't I think they're only maybe 22, maybe 23. They might not even be that age. Mm-hmm. I remember me at that age. Uh, I think I got my first cap at 21. You know, I was probably three years after those guys, two years after those guys. Ethan McElroy's another one. I mean, there's just so many very, very talented young players. Um that are that are coming through. And I would have maybe have loved to have gone through that but go back 10 years or yeah a little bit more that wasn't what was what was happening kind of uh, in rugby and it not just selected to Ulster it was it was everywhere but we had a team built of Irish superstars and Ulster superstars experienced players that you know I was taking I'd play a, a week on the wing and then the next week I'll play at 13 and then back to the wing and then half an hour before kickoff be told you're back on the wing or you're moving to 12 or something, you know, but um, it was great. It allowed me to play a lot of rugby, I suppose, but um, the, the, the eventual move to Edinburgh was to try and, you know, solidify, try and play more regularly in, in one position. Was that a tough decision, obviously, coming up, playing for your <laughs> province and then deciding to spread your wings and go somewhere else? It must have been a decision that took you a while to make. You know what? Um, I I, I kind of went looking for a new place. I I I wanted to achieve a little bit more with rugby, and um, I could have could have stayed at Ulster, and, and um, I think you know something like that. I know Andy Ward because I think he's had 150 caps. Is it? Um, Alan O'Connor, Alan O'Connor, another guy who, who I know really well, and he's a really really good man. You know, he's probably going to continue playing until he's got 250 caps he's just he's unbreakable isn't he so <laughs> um you know you see all these guys I could have been one of those guys at 32 probably with 100 100 plus Ulster caps maybe maybe not with the the kind of the talent that's come through um but I wanted something different I wanted a little bit of a change I wanted to move and um Edinburgh were the, the ones who who came to me and were really really keen and really interested and I thought well cool um didn't really know very much about the city other than i heard it was a good place and been there a couple of times as a kid but um yeah it was a 35 minute flight or a three-hour drive on you know the boat but for me that was massive and then i had to kind of catch myself on that there was guys coming from new zealand and australia and south africa on a whim and being offered like you've got a chance to go and train at ulster for six weeks and they're going yeah 100 percent 
but for me the journey to Edinburgh was yeah it was uh I suppose a big one to make but at the end of the day so grateful that I we did make a decision so grateful that my uh my well she's my wife now my fiance at the time followed me um uh, into into Edinburgh and into work but before I talk a little bit more about Edinburgh do you ever look back on Ulster and think what if I had stayed what if I had gone on to play all, all those more caps and where you could have gone yeah I suppose yeah of course I think um I left rugby um feeling content in where I got to um but with still uh probably still I, I want to have done more um but where I got to yeah fine you know with the way it was and the way it ended um I suppose I left on my own terms at 26 with no terrible injuries I you know I wasn't sort of um retiring through injury and things like the guys are going through at the moment but um I think yeah I would have would have maybe liked to back myself a little bit more um whenever I was it was in then and definitely probably lacked confidence in myself whenever I look back now I kind of being outside of it lack confidence in myself in some situations some scenarios that I would have loved to have just had a bit more of a I know Craig obviously Craig Gilroy from school he not an arrogant or cocky he's just so confident in his own ability I would have loved to have the confidence that he had had himself probably within 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 me just that little bit more mm-hmm. um it may have worked out in more caps or more games it may have pushed me on to you know um a little bit higher with rugby but um I said before and quite a few in- interviews that I've done post rugby um I really wanted to play for Ireland had massive aspirations but what I showed in, in the, on the rugby pitch for the time that I was playing at Ulster, I wasn't good enough to play for Ireland, and that's mm. I'm totally fine with that. But I would love to see maybe if maybe if my attitude was different or something. I don't know, but um, no, I can quite honestly say leaving Ulster to go to Edinburgh was a big move, but a happy one. And leaving rugby for for what I'm doing now is yeah, is great, and uh, I have no have no regrets about it, no reservations. So quite lucky. I've got to ask you one thing in particular about Edinburgh, and this is something that really intrigues me. What is it like playing in Murrayfield as your <laughs> home stadium? Because we've we've been there a few times as journalists, and you're sitting there and you're wondering how can how can Edinburgh yeah. be pumped up by playing in front of a stadium that's about ninety five percent empty? Yeah, look, um, well, that, that that's kind of yeah, it is difficult. That's not that's that's not being about the bush. It's tough, but I mean. I don't know. I think if you're going to the match or you see the match now, they've got the the kind of new stand out the back of uh, of Edinburgh. I, I've been there mm-hmm. myself a couple of times, watched them, and it is just a, a world apart. It is f- fantastic, and I think I don't know what the capacity is. Maybe it's eight or nine thousand. They're going to sell that out really soon because they are playing fantastic rugby, mm-hmm. um, to the point where probably if Edinburgh continue on the kind of journey that they're on at the moment with all the really good players and the good rugby and the and the wins and um. You know, it's not so much going to be can we sell out that nine thousand stadium. It's more we're going to be getting twenty five thousand or thirty thousand to every home game, and that's why you have Murrayfield. Um, but yeah, going to Murrayfield as an Ulster player playing against Edinburgh was always difficult because of the lack of um, atmosphere and things like that. Obviously, because you've got Ravenhill or Kingspan, that is obviously just packed and everybody's you know hyped up for the game on a Friday night or, or Saturday or whatever it is um but going into a stadium that's 60 odd 70,000 seats with five of them filled and um at the time when Edinburgh, when Edinburgh played Ulster and, and Ulster came to Edinburgh and I was playing for Edinburgh the I mean the the Ulster crowd massively outweighed the the home crowd um but that's not the case anymore um the the, the club is has definitely changed and moved forward and the co- coaching and the guys who I'm still in touch with there are, are obviously extremely happy with the new environment um and really working well but yeah to answer your question it's it was tough going yeah well, what was the biggest difference sort of been between Ulster and Edinburgh in terms of how they operated and playing for them um from a from a coaching point of view from a playing point of view really not very very much um you know, um, I think with with Ulster, whenever I moved to Edinburgh, there was, you know, probably two older statesmen that you, you looked up to. And well, 
older statesmen who were very well known in the game, Alistair, um, uh, Alistair Dickinson and Ross Ford. Okay, so two obviously, you know, multiple mm-hmm. caps and things like that. Um, they were the the two guys that you kind of looked to. Um, Roddy Grant probably would have been those as well, but he uh, he had to retire before um, the season started. After that, it was guys my age, Grant Gilchrist, um, Stuart McAnally, kind of Sean Kennedy, these guys who they were the ones stepping up into the roles of the leaders, whereas at Ulster, the leaders were still Rory Best and Trimble and Tommy Bow and Jared Payne and Darren Cave and things like that. That was maybe the only the only um, difference. Uh, I mean, good professional setup. It's got better as time has gone on uh, in Edinburgh. Um, and maybe Ulster were maybe a little bit ahead of the curve with the the building of Kingspan and having the facilities and having you know everything there on site. But I mean, Edinburgh have that all on site as well. Um, yeah. I suppose that's probably just the only only difference. And I suppose it was a very new situation for yourself in that in Ulster you're one of many homegrown players coming through. You're sort of part of the system where you've come all the way through and gone into the senior squad. Now you're joining a new squad where you're, even though you're very close by, you're still a foreign player coming in. It must have been a bit of a, a mindset shift for you as well. Yeah, I was I was just really excited. I, I just remember being really, really pumped up about going to a new club. And I'd never been the new guy anywhere. So my whole school career, I went to Downey House, which is close to Ravenhill. It's on you know, Ardenley Avenue. That, that was That's a prep school for Methody. I went to Methody. Then left Methody, went to Ulster. And at each step, I had pals and mates going with me on each step. So I didn't ever feel like the new guy. Um, and I was a new guy in Edinburgh. And it was it was quite exciting, quite fun. Um, it was just a shame how it happened. I, I got there and three weeks in the preseason doing a, a wrestling kind of judo style um, conditioning session with running and hitting bags and stuff. Dislocated my shoulder. Um, so I had to go for a tour of the labor, so I had to go for an operation. Um, yeah, three, three or four weeks into my, uh, you know, and I remember thinking like, geez, what a, I'm such an idiot. Like the, the guys are looking at me thinking, what the hell is this guy all about? I mean, new guys coming in, foreigner, um, getting injured, great, you know, <laughs> typical. But um, no, it was it was cool. It was great. And um, from the, the, the guys who I met and the, the guys who I um, socialized with at the time and still in touch with now, Really, really good bunch. Really top, top, top lads. Played a couple of years in Edinburgh, um, and then it comes to an end in 2017. I've read a few mm-hmm. interviews that you've done before, but can you just talk me through the process of sort of making that transition from playing into not playing? Because at this stage, as you said, you're still 26. You know, mm-hmm. realistically, you could still go and get a job elsewhere, but you decide that. The, the right call for you is to hang up the boots. Yeah, um, not so much that it was forced upon me. It was it was a decision that I took because of the events that led up to it. So, um, I wanted to stay in Edinburgh, um, and again through all the interviews and people were sick of hearing it. I had the the offer, and it was well, not an offer, but it was like yes, we want to keep Mike, and we want to sign him for a new two year deal, um, and, and things like that. And I remember. The agent speaking to me saying you he had a, had a meeting with the coaches and things and said would you play mike at both wings both centers if he needed you know could he be a, a sort of a four or five position guy and this is off the back of one or two or three games where i actually played you know an, an arrangement of those four positions at some sort um so it looked very positive from my point of view but now looking back my naivety was great, I'm standing in Edinburgh, brilliant, I want to stay here, my wife's pregnant, you know, we're all ready, she's doing really well in work, we don't want to move, love the city, and it was, it was there, but what I should have done was said to my agent, like, have a look for me around anywhere else, just in case, because if this falls through, then we want to have something, and now, I should have said that to him, yes, but should he have taken it on himself to do it anyway, yes, and I think that's where, um, I missed out, but also the, the the lack of communication between player and, and the, 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 the the agent wasn't there, um, which I didn't really get, and I was too naive to see it. Um, and that's kind of probably played a bit of a role in, in my mindset on things 
now as, as out of rugby and you know looking for a second opinion or asking a different question um but yeah um it got to sort of october november of 2016 and it was yeah it looked like it was a good deal happy days january came february no signing no signing um speaking to the agent what's going on They're, we're just waiting for the heads of agreement just waiting for the paper to be signed we're looking for the figures and i was like okay grant trust you fine but then it came down to it um and i've said it before duncan hodge who was the acting head coach he actually took me for a coffee the next morning and to be fair to him he told me straight up face to face what was happening he just said the contract's not there you're you're not staying um he didn't say it like that he you know he said it a bit nicer um would have been a bit callous if he just <laughs> dropped it on you like that yeah chucked uh, chucked a flat white in my face to see it, yeah. um no he didn't he was um he was pretty good about it to be fair um and i actually would would hold him in a, in a higher esteem uh, for, for doing that um not that i felt badly towards him in any case but um yeah no deal and immediately he called me agent and i said what uh, you know what the hell's going on um and he was just like this is news to me i don't know you're my agent you're supposed to be doing this job you know sort it out and yeah it was just that like richard cocker was coming in i was off contract and right enough um he, he didn't have me in his sights that's that's totally fine but because of the length of time that it took to get to that answer i mean we had been told in you know december or january like it's not there look mm. elsewhere then I, I may be still playing now um but i suppose it all works out in the end but um yep go do that and then we played ulster like two or three nights later and on a friday night at uh rivenhill kingspan um and met with the, the the head agent the sort of director of the company who i've known since i was sort of 18 coming out of school and i was like what is the options where are we going and he showed me a piece of paper and i was like every league you know on a flip book style so every top league um, and what positions they were looking for and this was i think the very end of february or the start of march of 2017 and there were there was no spaces anywhere in any top league for someone who wasn't um, a Pacific Islander, New Zealander kind of huge, you know, physical mm-hmm. ball player, um, or a marquee signing, or an international, or a potential like project player. Mm-hmm. I was none. Of, I was none of those. So <laughs> my my options were literally were were zero. Um, maybe if we kept digging, we could have found one. But um, the that happened. Didn't know what was going on and was by chance bumped into a guy wearing a suit at the uh, like a, a pre-game function where I wasn't playing so I suited up and do the PR or whatever and he asked me what I was up to why I wasn't playing I told him well I don't know I'm thinking of maybe retiring just uh, things have just happened do you want to come in for a chat what do you do I work financial advisors I was like oh what's that mean and then i was so naive i didn't did never have financial advice as a player which was stupid but um hindsight is wonderful um and yeah it kind of it went from that and then i liked what i was hearing like the idea of it putting put them put me through my exams you know coming out of it potentially as a financial advisor great um but it got to the point where i said that in my head i think i was going to go down that route at 2026 20, because the the offers of rugby were I had a couple of offers in the English championship and I just I said no that's not for me not to bag it not to do anything but I wasn't prepared to to do that plus I had my wife to think about who is a doctor and has an extremely good career um, and she's very good at what she does so I didn't want to take her away from where we were go- what, what she had planned as well um then the, the couple of offers came, well, potential offers, and I think one fairly strong one um, quite early on to Prodi 2 in France. So Prodi 2 in France, living in a lovely French town, French village, whatever. Uh, my wife had dreams of, you know, spending her maternity leave on drinking Sauvignon Blanc and, you know, walking around French villages and stuff. And it, yeah, I suppose that was appealing at the time, but I knew from some other guys who had played Prodi 2 that it could have been a year at one club, then another and then another trying to get to either the top level or get back to to England or to Ireland or, or wherever. Um, and 
I really wasn't prepared for it. Uh, I, would, I, I didn't want to do it. Uh, and that was made my decision easier. So I know when a lot of guys have left, they've left because there's no other option. You know, they can't keep playing or, you know, I could have kept playing. I could have found a contract somewhere. But um, really, to be honest, really glad that I didn't. Was where I am now, five years, my goodness, later. Um, actually really happy. And if I had a sign for another top club away from Edinburgh, and I didn't stay in Edinburgh for the job I'm doing, then I, I don't really know what life would have had in store. So it's uh, it's all worked out. Yeah, I was going to say, that if you said to Michael Allen five years ago that retiring would be the right decision, he might have laughed in your face, but... Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, it, rugby was the only thing I knew, only thing that I wanted to do. Um, and truth be told, I didn't think that I that I had it in me, um, sort of uh, intelligent-wise, to do anything else and I, I don't mean that in any rude way but I, I wasn't a very good student in school I was a good kid but I didn't try I wish I had of looking back I wish I had have applied what I did to pass all these exams and you know I'm halfway through chartered um, status with with being a financial planner um, and yeah if I had applied myself better I probably would have had a much nicer opinion of myself but I didn't think that I was going to be um, intelligent enough to go through um these exams but whenever you apply it you, you can do it quite easily and now financial advisor in edinburgh you, you mentioned there you feel like you should have had one whenever you were a player have you been talking to any players about potentially um, doing I, it themselves or yeah i've done i've done a bit i've done a few seminars um but um I, i've kind of moved away from it now um if somebody comes to me and they are a professional sports person i don't think i could have i could hope for a better client um not from a, a monetary sense but more just a person it be it's, it's really quite interesting to speak to you know pros and talk about their lives and talk about their aspirations and i think um my experience as a player i've lived it i've gone through it so you know who, who, you know who better to give advice than mm-hmm. someone who's gone through it and actually is now on the other side um but no there's i, I deal with a few guys um and like i said I've, I've kind of gone away from um trying to go for the rugby player and i just after time if if they need advice hopefully they'll come to me with uh with experience you know i'm four and a half years qualified now um like i said nearly chartered two exams ago hopefully um and more should get it everybody should have financial advice but you know those people that have a finite career of 10 or you know maybe not even 10 years eight years 10 years 12 years earning really good money but after that it's not the uh, it's not the easiest way of life coming into a uh, normal world um doing whatever you're doing yeah because i with my other hat on of, of ice hockey there's a there's a former NHL player who's been putting a lot of stuff on Twitter about how whenever you see guys getting X amount in salary, you think, oh, this is great. You know, they're they're able to spend what one and a half million on whatever they want. And it's fantastic. But then he starts breaking it down of where all that money goes to. And you suddenly realize that the one and a half million isn't actually one and a half million. So for, for sports people, it's just as important that they get financial advice as, say, somebody who who's working in a nine-to-five job. I, I To be honest, I would say it's probably uh, more important um, because of, you know, the risk of career ending um, overnight. Um, and that's everybody, you know, everybody should have career and insurance, whatever your sport and, you know, different things. But not everybody does. And that's, that's just life. Not everybody has life insurance, you know whatever but um i think for professional athletes whenever their their life is so dependent on their body and their body could give up on them just so quickly um whereas nine to five working regardless of the the job that you do or the salary that you earn your nine to five is you're probably going to be able to do that for 40 years to you know from uh, from uh, from 22 to 65 or 67 whenever the state pension mm-hmm. comes in now that idea to people is is you know completely switched whereas we had gone back 20 or 30 years people worked to get the state pension and then they retired whereas obviously people don't want to work for 40 years mm-hmm. you know to, to kind of retire um but rugby players don't have the the longevity of 40 players nor do 40 years sorry nor do um football 
players, men and women. You know, they all they all need to 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 make plans now whenever they're earning good cash, because they're not going to be earning that good cash for forever. So what's uh, what's life like now for you in Edinburgh? Then it's it's home. You're enjoying it, and uh, everything's going well. Yeah, yeah, at home uh, we love it. Uh, we live. Uh, as you look at it on the map, just north of the city, towards the water, um, Leith is sort of north uh, northeast. We're sort of right directly north in a place called Trinity. Um, two kids, five-year-old. She goes to school in August, which has gone very, very fast. Um, so the the beauty of um sort of summer holidays and um you know Halloween holidays and whatever else at the moment, because she's in nursery. Whenever she's fully in nursery and mm-hmm. whatever, well, that's not going to happen. So we're going to have six <laughs> weeks a year of, of summer holidays trying to figure out what to do. But um, yeah, it's all very good. Um, from retiring from rugby, picked up a few different sports, a few different things. Um, but mainly it was golf, and golf was going pretty good, and I was quite happy where my game was at. And then. You've got no um, shortage of good golf courses in Scotland. Well, this is it. Yeah, very, very lucky. Um, and I haven't even I haven't even scratched the surface of, of where to play. But um, uh, I've played I think once. The last time I played was December twenty twenty. Um, so obviously I've got a, a a young son now who's fourteen months. Is he? Yeah, fourteen months, fifteen months coming up. Um, just don't have the time to go and give four and a half hours to to a golf course. Um, you can't you can't and, really say to the wife, you know, I'm I'm away off here. You're in charge. <laughs> no, do, do you know what she was actually? She was she was brilliant. When in that she she would be probably quite quite easy to encourage me to say, look, go and go and golf, go and you know do what you want. But in my head, I'm I don't think it's very fair to you know land her with two kids for maybe a whole weekend or, or whatever else. Um, so yeah, the, the sort of four hour and a half hour golf, um, uh, golf, um, golf round or yeah, um, round of golf plus evenings at the driving range and things like that is I'll go to the gym two or three days a week for an hour, an hour and 15, an hour and 30 minutes. Um, and that's it. And I'm, I'm actually really, really enjoying it. There was a period where I, really disliked going to the gym and didn't want to do anything whereas I've got just yeah just it's the one thing that I'm doing to go and give me a bit of a release and it's uh, it's going really well so um, I'm quite happy I'm staying fit fit-ish and healthy-ish <laughs> and I, I assume being in the house with a doctor must have been quite difficult during COVID uh, yeah really good question actually yeah it um she she was uh she's an atheist so she was right in the um the covid wards here in edinburgh in the western hospital um so she was in the icu you know unit the covid kind of you know separate bay or whatever and it was just a period of uh, her working 12 13 hour shifts uh or night shifts um across the board and, and nurseries were closed and um my daughter was obviously in that nursery age she was two sort of coming three two and a half whenever lockdown hit um so for you know the whole of april and may and probably june i didn't i didn't really work and it was uh it was a very stressful time i'm self-employed and what i do so I, if i don't work i don't earn um but i was just a full-time dad and it was brilliant it was looking back i remember how you sounded maybe terrible but some of the days were really long like they felt just really long but we just had a we routine and she was brilliant she was out on her balance bike constantly and you know, she ended up actually cycling a pedal bike um i think it was six weeks before her third birthday um i couldn't believe it but it's because of time spent you know going on the cycle paths and going for walks and we walked through the woods and we picked up sticks and we went home and we painted pebbles from the you know from the from the beach like like everybody else did they tried to find ways of mm-hmm. staying entertained um during lockdown um but yeah, it was a, it was a tough time, and say I got a tough. I you know I, I wasn't working, so it was it was, it was stressful in, in that sense. But um, I mean, nothing compares to what any frontline doctor or, or nurse or anyone at all involved in in that you know horrendous period had to go through. So, count my blessings. I suppose that I'm not a doctor. I'm not as bright as my, as my wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but be, being in the house as a doctor, I suppose you get to see the other side. You know, everybody hears about the the stresses of doctors whenever they were in the COVID wards and all that. But you got to see whenever she came home and mm. uh, what she was dealing with there as well. Yeah, um, I, I must say she's incredibly stoic. You know, she's you know strong. She's a strong character. Um, 
and but you, you, it's a bar bar being tired and just you know sitting down and just wrecked you know she she, she was she was herself but i think uh yeah, to say that what she went through, and I'm, I don't mean to speak for her, but I'm sure there were some of those times that she just was, yeah, kind of overwhelmed by things going on, and, and just like everyone else um, involved in that. But no, she she was she's brilliant, and she's pushed on from that, and we're two years away, we're two years past it now, and we've we've kind of dropped the uh, the mask mandate in Scotland. You wear them if you want, and, and by all means, go for it. Um, and I was I was quite. I couldn't care less wearing a mask or not. Um, but now that the option is, you know, quite there to to not wear it, it's not a sort of a legal requirement. Yeah, good. Uh, it's nice to be to, to be moving on a bit. Nice to have a bit of normality back, and nice to have rugby back as well. After having to sit and sort of try and find about twenty million features while we were in <laughs> lockdown. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I know, and this is it. I mean, I. Um, I didn't. I didn't follow rugby massively um, as a as a player. I said I would, would have watched the games and obviously done the, the video analysis. Um, but I wouldn't have been a guy like I don't know if you've ever met him, but best mate of mine, Nalanet, who's down in Worcester. Mm-hmm. He's a he'll confess he's a proper rugby nut, and 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 rightly so because he's he's immersing himself in it and he's doing incredibly well with his own podcast. And you know he he'll be a fantastic coach. Um, down the line, he's already coaching the local, uh, you know, rugby club, but he will be a top rate personal coach, in my opinion. But he loves loves watching rugby, whereas I I didn't love it as much. But uh, the good thing that Edinburgh actually have going at the moment, and and Ulster do it as well, ex players can get tickets to home games, which I think is brilliant. I think it's really really good. Um, and I've taken a few clients and I've taken friends and things like that. And uh, yeah, being able to be there if you want, I think it's lovely. But uh, I'll be honest, the, the biggest rugby nut that I know is my dad. He lives and breathes it um, to this day. Still goes down to Belfast Harlequins and still tries to, you know, run the line, do touch judge. And he just loves it. Really, has always loved it. Will you be putting a rugby ball in the hands of, of your kids whenever they're old enough? Oh, gosh, yes, yeah, straight away. I mean, um, <laughs> I'll be, uh, one of the best classes we've taken my daughter to is rugby tots. Um, and it's not there's very little proper rugby in it they they had to squash the ball to score a try and um kick out your hands kick off the tee catch pass you know there is elements to it but it's not you know they're not sort of running passing drills or anything like that it's just kids mucking about they're playing beanbags hula hoops you know jumping over hurdles and things but they're carrying a ball but that i've seen her she's been doing it for almost probably almost two probably almost maybe three years and two and a half years and her hand-eye coordination because of it has obviously developed and become become pretty good um but yeah um i told i told him that she was going to this and he oh jesus eyes lit up and he was all delighted and our son um is yeah for he seems like quite a big kid but she's probably not but he's he's got that build that you could probably think oh geez maybe he would be a bit of a player (laughs) um but uh i see i mean I don't know. I don't know what I'd be if whatever they want to play, I'll support them. But if they ask me my opinion, if yeah, he said like that, I've got the chance of being I don't know professional rugby player or going to play you know top rate football or something like that. I don't know. If he, from what I've experienced in the injuries and the the salary, although good, it's, it's not as much as a football player. So or golf. If he wanted golf, I'm I'm all for golf. I'll just follow him around the world. I think and I my ever... daughter. If my daughter wanted to play. I'll, I'll just note down for the Scotland women's team in 15 years just to watch out for someone with the surname Allen. Just the, yeah, <laughs> could could well be. Yeah, she's into everything. She's just, gosh, she's into swimming and gymnastics and uh, yeah, uh, all sorts of dance class, you know, all the stuff, um, all the good stuff to be fair. But um, she, we've got a wee set of golf clubs in the house for for her actually whenever we bought them. Um, and now the wee man's picked it up and hammering around at the wee plastic ball. So it'd be fun to be inside it and see. It'd be great. Actually, I would love it if they um they grew up and they said, Dad, can can we go out for a round of golf together? I would absolutely love it. So uh, maybe I will slightly drop it, drop hints. Michael, just to finish, I, w- I want to ask yeah. you just for your your abiding rugby memory. If you were to say there was one thing that you would look back on, think, man, that, mm. that was the best moment of my career. What would you say? Oh God, really good question. Um. It could maybe be something. Obviously, getting the, the, my first cap for Ulster was was pretty special, you know. But 
at the the time that we got it, it was I think it was Boxing Day. I can't remember the year, maybe 2011. 10 oh, one of one of those games down at the RDS, wasn't it? Exactly down at RDS, and um, I remember Gordon Darcy like staring me out at the start of the match, and I was I don't know 21, and I was this this guy was a hero of mine I looked up to, and I just got <laughs> I was just like oh god, so maybe that, but um, probably more rather than a, like a like an absolute event, it was more like who I played with and the suppose the part maybe this is like a politician's after sitting on the fence, but um, the guys that I play with and the kind of bond that you make during a like a very brief like Irish tour. So I didn't play Irish twenties. Um but I went on those two emerging tours to the to Georgia and, and uh Romania and um the guys who were on both of those tours as well as as the coaches and all the staff and whatever else the players were brilliant. You just the first couple of days was a wee bit awkward and then you all head out and you're all best mates and it is fantastic it is so so good and i would hope that that happens for any kind of of those meetups in the future i'm sure it happens in kind of irish setup they're they're obviously they know each other much better but if it was a kind of a case if you play a season then you go on a tour at the end of the season for three or four weeks but you really don't know anybody by the end of those three or four weeks you'd probably be best mates um and uh, I was supposed to play against Brian Driscoll, didn't I? That was pretty cool. Um, but they beat us in the final. Um, and I, yeah, the, the the away match to Toulon for some reasons popped into my head back in um, maybe 2014, 2015. I mean, we they had a fully stacked team. It was incredible. I think I was playing against, I think I was up against Drew Mitchell or Habana, but both of them were playing. Lee Halfpenny was playing. Bastaro was playing, you know, all these like kind of, you know, superstars. Um, and Mike, yeah, maybe McComish, Mike McComish walks away with a hat trick. <laughs> yeah, I Mike. Yeah, yeah, got a hat trick. Yeah. Um, I know. Yeah. So, I mean, from that, one other thing, actually, maybe, sorry. The one, I know that we won the, the uh, Emerging Ireland Romania Cup, Nations Cup, which is great. Um, but winning the, the 1872 Cup with Edinburgh, my first year here in 2015, whenever Edinburgh were probably probably the underdogs. Yeah, probably quite easy, the underdogs um, for those games. And the first match was on the 27th of December, I remember it. And I think there was like 26 or 27,000 people there, and it was all along one side of the, the, the stadium. I think it was the East Stand. Um, but the, the, the atmosphere then was amazing just amazing um, and then we played them again the, the week after and we ended up winning the cup and it was that was a big deal I remember I've got a photo actually in my house we've recently just put up just on a load of like kind of photo collages and one of them is the uh, 1872 cup winning uh, winning photo which is pretty cool and but I not many I... else <laughs> <laughs> you've got two schools cup medals uh, Tbilisi cup medal and the 1872 two medallion cup. shields two medallion shields can't forget mm-hmm. about those <laughs> I know, I, I know I said finally, but I just want to pick up on one thing you said there about, about the crack yeah. that you had on the emerging Ireland teams mm. and stuff like that. Is that the kind of thing that you would like to see come back, you know, just for the crack that you had and the relationships that you made that maybe guys wouldn't be getting the opportunity to have right now? Yeah, I think I think if, it, if it's possible, if it's feasible, if the money's there, yeah, I think I definitely think the guys should do it um, or, or have a have the, the option to do it now you know maybe picking other places to visit for the tour you know i i would say probably uh if if ireland seniors went on a tour which i think is new zealand this summer so you know all the guys that leave there there's going to be guys that the, the level below that could maybe do a tour of canada you know or, or or something i don't know this is me throwing it out the top of my head but um yeah, let them let them go and have a chance of meeting up with a with a crowd of, of guys who they've only really known each other from across the pitch and uh, um, yeah, battling away with, with training either I don't know Romania or Georgia and um, trying to find fun and um, a guy who retired as well recently, Brendan Macken, who played at Leinster and and uh, London Irish, been in contact a little bit more with him. I should be in, co- in touch more, but he's in the same line of work uh, as me um Hayden and I were roommates on that Romania tour and and we, we both just got each other through the tour it was just it was brilliant it was just just constant fun 
Um, so yeah, I think if they can bring that back, it's good. Yeah, definitely. Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Thank podcast. You. It's fantastic Thanks. hearing uh, about your career and it's great to hear that life is going so well now that Thank you've you. hung up the boots and uh, listen, all the very best. And as I said, we'll all be looking out now for that Scotland women's team in 15 <laughs> years yeah. or so. Yeah, I know. I know we'll see. And I, who knows if, if the wee man takes it on as well, but I'm sure he will some, some, some way, shape or form. Big thanks to Michael for taking time out of his busy schedule to chat to me earlier this week. It was very much appreciated. And I think I speak for all of us when I say it's great to see him doing so well over in Edinburgh. And hopefully you all at home enjoyed that catch up with him. And it's something that we are hoping to do a lot more moving forward to have a few more guests on the podcast. So if you have any suggestions, please send them through to us and we will certainly do our best to get a few more uh, different voices on the podcast just to mix things up a little bit. Moving on, thank you to all of you who sent in listener questions this week. If I had known that Jonathan was going to be unavailable, then I maybe wouldn't have asked for them, as I'm sure you'd rather he was answering these than myself. But because you took the time to send them in, I'll quickly take a rattle through them and give you some answers, or I'll do my best to give you some answers. Uh, we'll start with the weekly Donal. Uh, he's sent in his question. He asks, are Ulster on the verge of a propping crisis with Jack McGrath out, Tom O'Toole suspended, and Marty Murr 50-50 for the weekend? Although I think he is sort of looking a little bit longer term with this question as well. Um, certainly for this week, I think they've got enough players available. Um, between Eric O'Sullivan and uh, and Andy Wark on the loose head. I think they're sort of there, and you've got Callum Reid there too. Uh, Gareth Milosinovic and Ross O'Kane will likely be the two players on the tight head. But looking a bit longer term, I, I do understand where the question's coming from because if you take a look at what Ulster have in the academy, I mean... It, I, I think it's not much of a secret that they were very much pushing for Stephen Kitchoff and that move hasn't come to fruition. So they were looking to bring someone in. I don't necessarily think they need another body at Loosehead. Kitchoff would have been a quality addition at, at Loosehead and certainly would have given them a whole new dimension to their pack. But um, if, if you're looking at needing a few more bodies in, I think it's probably on tight head because once you get below Murr and O'Toole, you're looking at Milosinovic, who's only made one Ulster start in his career. And if he starts this week, it'll be two, which we're expecting him to. Um, then you've got Kane, who seems to have fallen down the packing order. You've got George Saunderson in the academy, who has shown some potential with the underage teams, but has yet to really be given a shot at senior level. So, I don't think he's much of an option at the moment, but I think you might see him starting to push through, maybe not next season, but the following season. But I get where Donald's coming from. I certainly think that Ulster, if they had their choice, I think they maybe would want to go out and get some more help at, at tight head from an Irish qualified perspective. And it might be that you see Andy Warwick maybe transition back to tight head for a few games if necessary. Uh, but it, it would probably need two of their tight heads to be out again. And certainly one of the things I think we've seen from Marty Murray is he's very durable. He can play a lot of minutes and he has done this season. Uh, so I don't think they're necessarily too worried that he's going to be unavailable for prolonged periods of time as he has proven. So look, I, I th in an ideal world, I think you'd carry eight or nine props given how important tight head, tight head is as a position. But in, in this situation, I, I think they think they're going in next season okay at Tighthead. But certainly, I, I think, yeah, you, you could do with one more, one more name there as well. Uh, Philip also asks on Twitter, was it a mistake not to put Ian Madigan on at 10 earlier when the Mike Larry experiment wasn't working against Monster? This was something that I actually put, I was doing the player ratings at the weekend, and I thought Madigan was instantly better whenever he came on than Lowry. And I, I hesitate to say that Lowry had a bad game because I don't necessarily think he had a bad game. I think it was more that they missed him from fullback. And rather than that game proving that Mike Lowry doesn't have a future at fly half, because I think he still could have a future at fly half, I think it more reflected that right now, 
Ulster are better served with him at fullback and I think they need him more at fullback because with the greatest will in the world Stuart Murray is still a centre who is being asked to fill in at uh, at fullback for the time being and really I think one of the biggest things that has given Ulster that better attack this season is the fact that they've got the predictability sorry the unpredictability of Mike Lowry at fullback and whenever you take that away and put it in at fly half all right it gives defenses a little bit of pause at first receiver but it doesn't give you the same pause whenever someone's running it back from fullback like Mike Lowry the bigger issue for me at the weekend was the fact that Ulster started to go through Stuart McCloskey so much they started to rely on McCloskey with so many of their carries that they essentially became predictable and Munster were eventually able to work them out and there was no cutting edge. The Ulster's maul is a fantastic weapon, but whenever you're only able to maul over a team to get your tries, I think you've got to question your attack on that occasion and Ulster's attack was not sharp enough. Stuart McCloskey had a great game under the circumstances, the fact that he was always being wrapped up in the tackles, the fact he was able to have that much of an impact on the game shows how good he was but a player like that is better utilized whenever you can use deception to give him a big carry if you're just giving it to Stuart McCloskey every single time he will make you meters but he won't make you as many meters as if you gave it to him every third time Ulster just didn't have enough variation in attack and whenever they brought Madigan on they immediately had that bigger threat because Munster all of a sudden had to be worried about Lowry running from fullback. You have Madigan who looked sharp whenever he came on. You weren't relying on McCluskey as much, which allowed him to be a little bit more effective in the latter half of that game, or sorry, in the in the sort of last 10, 5, 10 minutes. But they didn't have that for the first 75, and that that's why their attack was so lackluster. Again, I, I don't mind Ulster going to the mall whenever it's so effective. Like if, if you have a weapon like that, then by all means, milk it for all it's worth. But if it's your only means of making considerable meters, then you've got other problems that need to be sorted. And I think Dan McFarland will probably come away from Saturday's game thinking to himself, Madigan is a guy that we can maybe turn to a little bit earlier in games to turn them around as opposed to as late as they did. Um, Big Jim asks, after what up until the last few weeks was a cracker of a season, if we lost the remaining two games, is it possible to miss the playoffs and not qualify for the Champions Cup? Um, I had to get my maths head on. And if you saw my school results, you would know that my maths head is not very good. So I'm going to apologize in advance if this maths is wrong, but I think I've got it right. So the playoff situation is the top eight teams are fairly close. And then obviously you only have to get into the top eight to get a playoff place. And then obviously your seeding determines where you play and whether you're home or away. Um, and then there's a little bit of a gap down to the Scarlets in ninth. So essentially what, what we're asking with this first question is, will Ulster finish above Scarlets in ninth and therefore get into the playoffs? And I know that's not their ultimate aim. Their ultimate aim will be to push on higher and get home advantage in the playoffs. But for the moment, we'll just address this question as, will they get into the playoffs first and foremost? Um, there is still a chance that they will miss out on the playoffs. If they lose their last two games and get nothing from those two games, then two Scarlet wins with one bonus point and they play the Ospreys and the Stormers in their last two games, uh, then that would be enough to put the Scarlets above Ulster into the playoffs. Now, bonus points will come into the mix and look, I, I can't see Ulster coming away from their final two games with nothing from them. I think that's uh, that's a little bit of a stretch. But certainly, yes, if Ulster lose their last two games, the Scarlets do have a chance to overtake them. And I think, I would imagine the Scarlets will beat the Ospreys this weekend, and therefore that will set up something in, in the final round if Ulster can't beat Edinburgh. But that's that's the situation there. Ulster are currently eight points ahead. They have to either be six points or more 
ahead of the Scarlets going into the final round of games, or they they have to essentially pick up two more points than the than the Scarlets in the last two rounds. They're almost there, but there is still a possibility that they will miss out. But as we say, Ulster are certainly going for more than that. They are looking for home advantage, and I think that's what's going to fuel them this weekend. To move on to the second question, Champions Cup. Champions Cup qualification is a little bit confusing, so if you allow me to explain for a second. The winners of the four shields in the URC, so you've got the Irish Shield, the Scottish-Italian Shield, the Welsh Shield, and the South African Shield. The four winners of that, or of those, all qualify for the... Uh, for the Champions Cup next season and then the next four sides will qualify as well uh, regardless of where they are from so currently Leinster, Stormers, Glasgow and the Scarlets will get in as Shield winners and then Munster, Sharks, Ulster and Edinburgh will get in as those next four who didn't win the Shields the problem is because the Scarlets are currently outside of the playoffs then it seems likely that eighth place won't make it in unless the Scarlets become that eighth place team. So because the Scarlet, because one Welsh team has to qualify and as it stands, all of the Welsh teams are finishing outside the top eight, one of the top eight will then have to miss out because the Scarlets have to make it in. So Ulster, to make it into the Champions Cup, essentially have to finish in the top seven. Um it could still be the top eight if teams move around, but in order to make it into the Champions Cup, it's, it seems like top seven is where they have to finish, and that just adds another layer of intrigue into this because even if they made it into the playoffs, but if they finished eighth and missed out in the Champions Cup, that would be a massive blow. So that's that's the situation with Champions Cup qualification, just in case anybody wasn't aware. Again, look, I'm going to... I'm going to nail my colours to the mast here, and I, I think Ulster are, are going to make the playoffs. I think they're going to qualify for the Champions Cup. I don't think their their schedule is hard enough that they will miss out on both, but they are still in that position, so uh, that is that is where they are. Uh, and finally, I'll lump two questions together from Ryan Jennings and Ken Adams, essentially asking the same thing. Do Ulster even have it in them to bounce back from those two disappointments against Toulouse and Munster and get back on track against Edinburgh this weekend? One of the things that I was very interested about after the Toulouse game was all the talk about mentality and how Ulster... Uh, Dwayne Vermeulen stood up in the changing room afterwards and he said to the players, you know, some of you guys will get over this immediately. Some of you guys will take a week. Some of you guys will take a month. I think we saw that there were too many players on that pitch on Saturday night who hadn't got over the previous week's game. And that led to a bit of a lack of energy. It led to a drop in performance. And Munster took advantage of that. A Munster team coming off the back of the boost of a win against Exeter, took advantage of that, and they came in and they got a very deserved win. I don't think anybody's going to sit here and argue that Munster didn't deserve to win that game. The question now is, can they do it all again and this time have a better reaction against Edinburgh and get it done away from home? And, I mean, at, at this stage, I think one of the differences this week and last week is last week Ulster knew they were in a position where they could still lose and still get the top four. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not I'm not sitting here and saying that Ulster went into that game thinking, ah, we can lose this. It's okay. That's absolutely not the situation because we're now in a point where Ulster are very quickly seeing their season collapse in the space of a short few weeks after what has been, as Big Jim asked in his question, a very good season up to this point. Like we're, we're talking about a season where if Ulster had won, let's say Ulster won that Stormers game, they got that decision at the end there and they won that game. And then they managed to get over the line against 
to lose. Ulster are going into that monster game riding the crest of a wave. They're still in with a massive chance of top two, potentially even catching Leinster in first. And they've got a, a European quarterfinal to look forward to. Compare that to the, the very fine margins of that try not being given in Cape Town and even six minutes from the full-time whistle against Toulouse in Belfast. That's completely different. The game has comp- Their season has completely swung in momentum based on one refereeing decision and six minutes. Now, Ulster, that, that's not an excuse. You know, Ulster still have to play for 80 minutes in, in every game. They shouldn't be putting themselves in a situation where they have to rely on a controversial refereeing decision or a, a two-legged tie comes down to six minutes at the very end. But at the same time, we're talking about extremely fine margins here and we have no idea how that monster game would have played out had they won the Toulouse game. So this is where your your players have to really switch on. And this is where you see who the real professionals are in a team. Because you're now in a position where Ulster have to win. You are now coming down to the final two games of the regular season. And if you lose one of them, you miss out on home advantage in the playoffs. And if you lose both of them, you're potentially not even getting in the playoffs and not in the Champions Cup at all next season so there's a little bit more urgency this week there's a little bit more do or die than it was last week and I think that's probably one of the things that will sharpen the mindset a bit that they didn't quite have last week and to be honest I don't know why they didn't have it last week because it's an interpro as well you should be getting up for that Uh, but certainly I think this week you will get a good indication of where this Ulster team are in terms of do they have the mentality to really be one of those top teams. They've talked about being a top team all year. Now they have to show that they are one of the top teams. They've done it in previous games, but now whenever you get down to the business end of the season, it's completely different. Rugby is played completely differently because it becomes so much more about what's between your two years than between the four lines of the rugby pitch. So... I think you're going to get a good indication this week. You're probably going to have Dwayne Vermeulen back, which will be a massive add to that back row. Uh, if they miss, especially if they're if they're missing Ian Henderson in the second row, that's a massive amount of leadership to bring back in. So uh, it's going to be a very close game, I think. Edinburgh are, are playing some very good rugby at the moment. And I think, uh, as you heard Michael saying, whenever, whenever I interviewed him there, you know, playing in the smaller stadium, which they can sell out as opposed to Cavern, that is uh, Murrayfield, it makes a big difference to atmosphere and really bigging the guys up. And I think we have seen that from some of the performances that Edinburgh have had. So very interesting game. Uh, and hopefully it's uh, it lives up to the hype that I've given it now. Um, so, yeah. Um, again, thank you to everyone who sent in questions. Apologies again, it was just myself answering them, but the uh, situation out of our control dictated that. We will have more than just myself going through them next week, so uh, please keep sending them in for next week's show using the hashtag AskURR. And as I said earlier, if you have any suggestions for guests that you would like to hear from or people that you would like to see come onto the show and us have a bit of a chatter with them about, uh, about their lives, then please send us those suggestions as well. You can probably use the same hashtag. We'll pick it up in the same way. In the meantime, you can follow all of the action from Saturday's game in Edinburgh on the Belfast Telegraph website through our live blog, which I will be doing as per usual. Things will be kicking off around about 7 o'clock for the 7.35 p.m. kickoff. We'll also have ratings and reaction post-game from the match at Dam Health Stadium. And of course, Saturday is the big game at Ravenhill as Ireland women take on Scotland women in the final game of their TikTok Six Nations campaign. The team has just been announced as I'm recording this. Uh, Vicky Irwin will be making her debut at fullback alongside Catherine Dean at scrum half and Neve Jones at hooker from an Ulster perspective. Uh, I believe it's getting close to 10,000 people will be going to that one, which would be absolutely massive. So uh, 
if you can get down to it, it should be a great game and uh, cheer the girls on. We'll also have a report from that game up on the Belfast Telegraph website. And that's all we have time for. Thank you very much to Michael Allen for coming on and being part of the podcast. And thank you very much to all of you for listening. This week, we're not going to end with our theme music. And instead, we are going to end the podcast on silence as a mark of respect for Pedri Vandenberg, who passed away last week at the age of 41. The former Ulster flanker was killed in Texas when a driver fleeing from the police struck the car that Vandenberg and his family were driving in. Sadly, Pedri lost his life in the incident and San Francois is currently in hospital, recovering from surgery for life-threatening injuries sustained at the time. Fortunately, wife Yvette and daughter Isabel suffered no serious injuries. Vandenberg played 54 times for Ulster after joining them from the Bulls in 2010, scoring nine tries, including in the 2012 Heineken Cup semi-final against Edinburgh at the Aviva Stadium. The back rower, who won 20 caps for the Springboks, would go on to play for four years in France after leaving Ulster with Cast and then Oyana, before moving to the States and playing one season for each of the Denver Stampede and Austin Elite prior to retiring. He would then go into coaching with the Elite as an assistant in 2019, a role he held up until his untimely death at the weekend. Vandenberg was a fan favourite at Ravenhill, while his story was one of immense strength and self-will, beating drug and alcohol problems while in South Africa. He was described by former teammate Stephen Ferris as a genuine fella, while SA Rugby President Mark Alexander called him a fun-loving and hard-working man. Our thoughts and prayers are with Yvette, Isabel and Francois, and all of the Vandenberg family. <laughs>